0: Okay, we left off in the uh, Vajra song, Free and Easy. We finished the, uh, I wouldn't say finished, but we said a few words about uh, that first general statement, which I think is the whole thing. And now they're elaborations. Happiness, if you recall, cannot be found through great effort. And willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. The next line says, Don't strain yourself. Trying to see if, trying to find units of, uh, appropriate units to comment on. Yeah, that stands by itself. There is, don't strain yourself. (laughs) Which is what I was doing. From the uh, place of, of real silence, so many of the things we're doing are strain. Relative to what we know, they may not seem that way to us. Uh, in preparing uh, to enter into the spirit of this kind of meditation, and here we, we hear uh, don't strain yourself, uh, so many things can come into play uh, so that you don't strain yourself. I'm sure you can think of more once I get started. An obvious one would be the body. When we start to sit, uh, sometimes the teachers will say, relax, sweep through the body, see if there's any tension, bring mindfulness to it, uh, sit erect but comfortably. Um, any attempt to help the body Uh, Sit in comfort is a step in the right direction, and in this kind of meditation, especially important. Um, And so, uh, here what's asked of us is to become really sensitive to places of strain in the body. Uh, And we create strain in the body, of course, often through the mind... We may come to our sitting with strain, the accumulation of tensions over many, many years that are stored in the body. And when we sit down, we can feel some of it. Some of it starts to surface, and as those of you know, probably all of us, it can be extremely uncomfortable. Um, The jaw perhaps is tight because we're determined. There's a kind of joyless determination, and it turns up in the jaw, or maybe the shoulders are poised for the breakthrough. (laughs) The teeth clenched. This is it, it's around the corner. Uh, And it shows up differently uh, for different, uh, different stages of the practice, uh, beginners or, you know, maybe no one here, but on retreats, people who are, let's say, new to longer retreats or new to IMS, uh, one of the things that's important to help them see is that they may be frightened. They may be afraid of failure. They're in a situation, they're not sure they can do it. They're not sure they can sit still and, be quiet, and they see the schedule, and they've been told what it is. Let's say these are new people, and they're friends who've done it, it and said how valuable it's been, and you go. But uh, there's some fear and uh, concern with failure, and that can sometimes be compensated by tremendous uh, strain in the body. Then when you become a big advanced yogi, then it's it's more ambition, striving. Uh, You've been sitting for a few weeks, and it's just been wonderful, just having wonderful, clear sittings, and then you do some kind of uh, dharmic mathematics. Let's see, I've been sitting an hour in the morning and an hour at night, and I feel this fantastic. Multiply that by all the hours that I'm going to be sitting at IMS. Let's see, we start at whenever 5:45, add that up. to the late night sitting. I can do that too. I mean, and we come in there, we're really ready, ready to go ready to get at it. And so it can turn up that way. Or special projects. People have problems, problems in business, family problems, decisions that we have to make. We're in conflict. Should I move to Keokuk, Iowa, or stay here? (laughs) I have nothing against Keokuk, Iowa, just someone said that to me once. (laughs) I've I've never even been there. So, strain turns up in the body. Um, One of the uh, beautiful things that comes out of practice, but certainly the breath, uh, which this I I know fairly well, because I've seen it in myself and others. Often people don't realize this is happening when you point it out. Sometimes they can see that it's quite true. The breath is a very, very powerful conditioner of the body. That is, what happens to the breath happens to the body. Now, that makes obvious sense because uh, we know that we come into life with the breath and we die when we stop breathing. So obviously the breath has a very, very powerful relationship to the life of the body. But we don't concern that ourselves too much between the time of getting born when we were too young and, and when it's time to move on. Uh, but as you attend to the breathing, Breath, uh, on it, the breath starts to become more refined, more subtle, smoother, deeper, and so forth. Although this is not breath therapy, Anapanasati is not breath therapy, the Buddha from time to time has talked about the health benefits of the breath. He never goes into too much of that. I think he's afraid people will uh, get all caught up in that and forget about what he's really teaching. Um, So, as you pay attention to the breath, without trying to do anything to it or to fix it, uh, the quality of the breathing uh, tends to improve. And as that happens, it affects the body. So, when breath awareness becomes much more continuous and effortless, relaxed, and the breath is just very, very fine and enters and exits freely, uh, it starts to affect the body in a very, very positive way. It's easier to sit comfortably and longer. You may not realize that to some degree it comes from that. Now, when that level of breath concentration or breath even absorption becomes deeper, you get to states like Piti, P-I-T-I, or rapture it's sometimes translated as, which is a tremendous, uh, it's somewhat active, but it's a tremendous joy that comes out of a concentrated mind. And that can have a very, very powerful beneficial effect on the body all kinds of knots that are in the body can just untie themselves. So that, of course, puts the body in a better condition to be able to continue with, uh, with the, pr- the awareness practice. Um, I guess don't strain yourself. I want to have something left to say for the rest of this, but... Uh, One uh, main way in which there's strain, a subtler one, more of the mind, and that certainly came up in interviews today in all the groups, is um, there's a very subtle kind of strain that comes from expectations, where we uh, want something special to happen, to come out of the meditation. When you're sitting, waiting for something to happen, there is some tension there. Now you may not call that tension, but again, relative to the to the peace that we're moving towards or that uh, that comes out of this, uh, there's tension, there's an expectation uh, typically, there's a concept in our mind which we again may not be aware of, uh, even with silence or we feel the thinking starting to slow down, and so then there's the thought of if this keeps going like this i'm gonna i'm gonna really drop into silence just with what I've been reading about and hearing about. And so uh, there's a kind of waiting, waiting for something special to happen. And uh, you have to see that. And when you see it, it falls away, and you're just there again. Sometimes it, uh, it, it's called waiting without waiting. And that's a, a waiting that isn't a problem. I mean, it's just a real openness. Perhaps it's what what real prayer is about. I don't know. I, I haven't done that. but. Sometimes when I hear about it and read a little but not much, when there's a waiting but for nothing in particular, just the total and complete and utter openness and simplicity. Choiceless awareness is, is, a, is a, an exercise in utter simplicity. It's, it's stripping away all of the different roles and aspirations and plans and schemes, techniques, doctrine, theory, that we work so hard to accumulate, even Dharmic. And to just, I'm not even going to insert a word. Someone once asked the Chinese master Matsu, uh, what is Buddha? And he said, mind is Buddha. And then later on, someone came up to Matsu and said, I hear you're telling people that mind is Buddha. Is that right? And he said, oh, only when the baby is crying, you have to tell it a bedtime story to calm it down. (laughs) He said, so what do you say after the baby stops crying? No mind, no Buddha. So, anyway, you figure it out. (laughs) And we get to there is nothing to do. So we said, don't strain yourself. I think you all have a feeling for that very much. Trying to do it right, trying to be a good yogi. There is nothing to do nor undo. Hmm. Nothing to do nor undo. Here again, uh, I don't think it's ever been said better than, let me see, I just want to, Yeah, I think, uh, again, a a very great Chinese master named Lin Chi, many of you, probably most of you know know that name as Rinzai, at one point said, take it easy and do nothing. This is part of how he was teaching Dharma. Take it easy and do nothing. That's really what we've been talking about. Take it easy. In other words, take it, receive it in an easy way, whatever it is. Remember, you're sitting with whatever's there. Take it easy, really receive it, just receive it, and do nothing. It's not siesta, it's not inaction, it's non-action. It's not vegetating, you're doing nothing. Now, this can be misunderstood because sometimes that's the problem, you're trying to do nothing. Uh, which, of course, is a big something. Uh, what he's getting at is when you're is to really do nothing. Uh, this practice uh, of choiceless awareness uh, brings together two energies that, uh, at least to communicate about them, are uh, we we can m- give two different words for them. Uh, they when it's when the practice is really sailing along, they fuse and you can't separate them. One is there's a very passive aspect and that is this absolutely um, absolute receptivity. You're not doing anything. It's passive in that you're not doing anything. You're not trying to intervene, uh, etc. And it's active in that it requires a very high degree of alertness, real uh, alertness. Now, if the alertness, if you're straining to be alert, you know, with the jaw and all that stuff and the shoulders, uh, then that has to be relaxed, because that's not going to help you. That's actually a barrier to what this whole approach is about, which is a gradual letting go of all contrivance, all battle plans, blueprints, designs, and some of the most cherished dreams of the ego. Sometimes they just just have to let them go. It can be painful. Um, at a certain point, when the mind is really balanced, it's both very passive and also very active in that it's present and really alert. There's real alertness in the presence. But there's no intentional tampering with what's happening. Nothing to do, or to undo. When we meditate, very often we tend to see things that come up as problems to be fixed, and we want to do something about it, so this is what we're up against. It's why we need to hear these instructions, because we're, we're not doing that. We're, uh, we see it as a problem, and we've had a tremendous training in our life, and conditioning and encouragement to fix things that need fixing. If you're a mom, you're an expert at looking for problems and fixing them. If you're in the business world, you're also doing that. Wherever you are, we've had a lot of practice, uh, a lot of life is problems. And you meet them, if you're successful, you meet them gracefully with as little emotional cost as possible, and you you do what you need to fix it. When we're sitting and something comes up, and let's say we define it as a problem, like my problem of loneliness, my problem of fear, My problem of grieving. Someone's uncle uh, died on the retreat. I don't know if she's here still. What do you do with that? Okay. Now, typically, uh, something in us wants to to fix it, either to cart it away or we get out of our toolkit and we want to start hammering away or screwing or sawing or do something to make it okay, to make it better. Because of our preoccupation with a solution, with an outcome, with the uh, fixing of it, we don't really see the object. In other words, this concern with a result, with an outcome, with a remedy, uh, discolors the object. You, you don't see the, the object because uh, part of the mind is too concerned with what's going to happen to it in a favorable way if you do the right thing to it. Even if you hear, just watch it. Okay, so what's much more important than the problem, much more, and that's what we're learning, because problems come and go, from the point of view of this practice now, is the approach. The approach is really crucial. And the approach is to just see it. Now, in order to do that, you have to start seeing that you have a lot of very strongly conditioned habitual tendencies to... Uh, to do something, to get out your toolkit and to start fixing things. And you start to realize that uh, you're not really seeing what you even say you're seeing because of you're a bit ahead of yourself, sometimes called a gaining idea, but it can be more subtle than just ambition. It's not really, it, it can be anything where you're not fully allowing what's there to just be exactly as it is and for that to be enough. Now, the approach is so important and I think that's part of what's revolutionary in these kind of teachings, is that the problems come and go for everyone, whether you're a meditator or you're not a meditator, what we're really learning is a radically new way to approach what arises, to meet it in a very, very different way. Instead of grabbing it or pushing it away, to just bring attention to it. Now, in choiceless awareness, what we're, what we're doing is we allow everything to roam freely and then we meet it in a very friendly way. We're learning how to make friends with all these different creations that come up from wherever, of the mind and of the body. We've given uh, completely f- complete free license to the mind and body to start expressing itself. The instructions, just sit. Just be yourself. Okay, That's an invitation for lots of things that are already in us to start to come to the surface, some of which we may define as a problem. Oh, here comes my shyness, here comes my whatever. How to learn to approach something that's problematic in such a simple way without any notion of fixing it, carting it away, adding something to it, subtracting something from it. It's the art of observation, real observation. It's, it's a quite a refined art. It's not just to read mindfulness as being present in the, in the moment. Yeah, that's great. I can do that. Yeah, I'm, you, were you mindful? Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. But, you know, as you go on, uh, one of the main things that can come out of a life of awareness is the whole art of observation it, uh, gets refined. And you see how there are... Um, it's kind of an admixture of seeing plus stuff our personality, our yearnings, our fears, or these projects that we have about fixing ourselves, fixing the mind. So the approach is very, very important. Um, Here there's a crucial, uh, for me personally, it was a turning point in my practice. You know, a lot of what this is directed at is the tendency that we all have uh, to avoid things, that is, uh, to not be with just what is, because that's what this whole thing is about. Just be with what is in this very simple and direct way. And part of what we've been doing is we postpone dealing with what's coming up, let's say uh, anything, we avoid it, let's say it's fear. And I'm going to use fear because fear, I don't know anyone who doesn't go through this, inevitably comes up as in choices awareness as we start to approach the threshold of of real silence. We can call it the unknown. Um, We have many networks of escape. We can deny it. We can repress it. Obviously none of these things are practice. We can grasp onto it and identify with it. Uh, We can avoid it, we can uh, cope with it, we can deal with it, we can put up with it, we can postpone. There's a lot of energy, all of which are different ways to not face it simply and directly. And one very uh, good one that isn't recognized so easily, especially among people who are intellectually minded, who've read lots of books, is we explain it very often if we have an ex- explanation for what's happening, it's so satisfying that we're done, our job is done, let's move on to the next thing. We haven't begun. Buddha said, Jesus said, Krishnamurti said. That's not and it, and it feels good, and it feels fulfilling. And so that's another... Uh, no, no, we don't do that, we learn... Uh, it's it's a kind of letting go of so many things that we've done, some of which have been relatively helpful, have gotten us this far in life. Okay, this is a big one. Uh, I think this whole paragraph probably should be commented on together. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind, has no real importance at all, has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with, become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Here, to link this up to the, um, the teachings of the Buddha, let's say in the Anapanasati um, uh, Sutra, uh, the last four contemplations are the wisdom contemplations, and uh, what uh, one good way of understanding this is that it grows out of a deeper understanding of anicca, of impermanence and emptiness. That is, if you've been practicing remember uh, doing this practice I'm, oh, i always think that we've had a foundation of basic practice before we come to it or along excuse me alongside of it i apologize to the loudspeaker <laughs> <laughs> i'm getting very spiritual <laughs> Um, in the 13th contemplation, uh, and this is, of course, basic to the Buddhist teaching. Every, every school, uh, you've all heard this over and over and over again. But uh, one way in which it's put is, um, being, ch- being sensitive to the changing nature of all formations, uh, the meditator breathes in. Being sensitive to the changing nature of all formations, the meditator breathes out. Okay. Now, that, on its face, is just about impermanence. But uh, impermanence is a doorway into uh, a a deeper understanding of unsatisfactoriness, and tonight I'm going to emphasize the emptiness, which is, I think, what's gotten at here. Um, One of the important reasons for seeing impermanence at work, and so if you're doing that when you're, uh, uh, Vipassana is really cooking, You're seeing that no matter what comes up, whether it's the breath, whether it's a thought, whether it's a mood, a sound, a smell, a bodily condition, if I've left anything out, it arises and passes away. This lawfulness cuts through content, but we're preoccupied with content. We impute a certain solidity to what's happening. We're very interested in the content of what's happening to us, of course. It's natural. In fact, I think it's a stage in practice when you're able to not be so fascinated by the content of your own mind, and are able to look at the process, be able to see that no matter what it is, whether it's profound or trivial, it arises and passes away. Now, as you begin to see that at work, uh, and it's very important to... this has to be learned in a deep way for it to have transformative power. As the mind becomes more silent, and that's in choiceless awareness, Seeing the coming and going, coming and going, brings you to much more silence. When the mind is very, very silent and is seeing all of this change, uh, let me suggest in general what tends to happen. First of all, it helps you let go. It makes no sense to hold on to things in a changing world. Because it can't be done. It's just not intelligent. Now, it may take us a while to get that. And we have all kinds of emotional reasons to not honor it. So, we stick our hand in the fire and we get burned. And we stick our hand in the fire and get burned. And how many more times do we have to do that? Until we learn. Okay, now, one of the beautiful things of silence to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, ah, not enough time, um, is when the mind becomes silent, more quiet, and uh, it sees something, let's say, uh, the changing nature of all formations, whatever turns up, that uh, changing nature touches the silence. The mind is quiet, really watching. And uh, that that, that impermanence, I have to use a word, but not the concept, the actuality of it, touches the silence and stimulates a deeper kind of understanding. It touches the silence. The silent mind uh, there is a form of intelligence. The silent mind has... Uh, there, are, there are many forms of intelligence. It's not rational, but it's not irrational, either. And so what happens is, is that that silence uh, learns the lesson of impermanence at a depth that the rational mind doesn't, probably can't. Kay. So as you begin to see that, it becomes easier to let go because it's just sensible. Also, as you're watching objects arise and pass away, come and go, you begin to see that their apparent substantiality is just that. It's apparent. And this is, again, not something to take on as an ideology. That is, uh, so you feel that you belong to the Buddhist club. Everything is empty. Everything arises, passes away, lacks self, it's empty. And you feel like you belong in the emptiness club. And tell other people who know much less about you, well, that's just empty. <laughs> and they get angry because it seems stupid. <laughs> what it means is you begin to see the, in a sense the ephemeral nature of whatever it is. If you see things change enough times, your relationship to that thing changes. You, you start to see what it actually is. Now to, to begin with, without sustained and careful attention, things do appear to be very solid. When fear is there, it's as if it's there forever. And it's massive. And then it sets in motion panic or all kinds of tactics like evasion and denial and suppression. But if, if you manage to uh, approach fear in a friendly way, to come in close, and as you begin to learn to do that, you do it a few times, and the whole quality of fear changes for you. You're able to, to see, oh, here's fear. Here's terror. Come on in. Sit down. Have a cup of tea. You don't believe me. It's just it's energy, and you and you begin to see uh, the energy of fear move through the body. You see what it does to the body. Okay, now that doesn't happen overnight, but that is some of the fruit of practice. That's how you get free of fear. You have to. It's intimate, intimate. But the there's a kind of the mind has some of the austerity of a scientist this mind that we're talking about, but it also has um, warmth. It has warmth and uh, real uh, caring about what's happening, even though it's not for or against. Um, as you begin to see uh, the nature of these things, you're able to let them go. And of course, now we could stop here. Maybe we'll have to, and you know, next retreat, we'll finish this or maybe tomorrow, a little bit after, because I don't, I don't see how I can finish this by 8. Um, what we're talking about here... By the way, I, but I do want to clarify this, where it says, whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all, has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Be careful when, with that one, where it says, no real importance. Uh, teachings emphasize different facets of reality. And in order to help you let go, it's very useful to see it as having no importance. But if you get attached to that, uh, it can be something called emptiness sickness, where uh, because uh, the forms exist in the world. And it's not like they're not there. It's just they're not there in the way we think they are. And So life goes on. You come back to the same world, but only with a a much freer relationship to it because you've seen that it's empty. Empty doesn't mean that it's worthless. Impermanent doesn't mean that it's worthless. Okay, just uh, wanna make, it's not nihilism in short. It's not uh, life sucks. It isn't. (laughs) What starts to happen here, and here's where the, the, the power and the beauty of choiceless awareness can, uh, that if you if you ever if you're into it, it's not a method for everyone, but if you take to it, um, it's uh, it's utter simplicity, becomes uh, something that it's a quiet passion. It takes a lot of energy and effort and interest, but it's uh, it's a passion that's uh, unassuming. Is that, the mind starts to empty itself of its own content. As you start letting go, uh, the mind starts emptying itself of its own content, and this brings you uh, to silence. And then we have a a whole another phase of practice, learning how to allow ourselves to be taken by the silence, to soak in it, to allow it to work on us. Uh, Of course, it does something extraordinary if you learning how to stay there, in short, and learning how to come from the silence into action. That's a, that's a complete practice. Um, in the emptying of the mind, of its content, we're emptying it uh, of all of its identifications. That's what th- this uh, song is saying. The most important identification that we're emptying it of is the identification with all representations in the mind about who we are. There is, uh is, we're attached to this, we're attached to that, we start to see it, let go, let go. But uh, finally, the key one is the attachment and identification that we have with representations. Now, here's what I'm trying to say. Uh, this is getting at the question, who am I? And it's getting at the heart of the whole practice, where, where it's really going if you want to talk about it in terms of true nature, original nature. By a representation, what I mean is a notion that you have as to who you are. A picture in the mind, an image that you have of who you are. These can be very, very strong. And often we're not even aware we have them. A few times on this retreat, people reported certain images that they didn't know they had, self-images, that were just broken into pieces. One person, Uh, was very uh, surprised at how uh, problematic the heat was. You know, it was a sense that I've practiced with much worse than this and, uh, you know, warrior mind. And, but then suddenly this came out of nowhere and it turned out to be problematic. Okay, Uh, suddenly there's a bit of disappointment. Well, I thought I could do this. I mean, I've done worse than just heat. Uh, but the point is, what the mind is is bringing up are all kinds of notions about who you are. Here's what I mean by a representation. I, I see some puzzled looks. Let's say um, when you graduate from a school at some level, and your family has a nice photograph of you, a little bit touched up, you know. <laughs> Oh, the teeth are whiter, the smile is... They've caught one trillionth, I don't know how photographers would know, a a frame of you, fixed it up a little, and then again framed it, and it's in in wallets and on pianos, and it's being displayed to people as you. Now, is that you? No, that's a representation of you. It's not you, okay? It's a representation of you. How about the description? I'm a very kind person. Uh, that, those may be helpful words, but they're not—they're not really you. They're verbal representations. Let's whatever comes up in the mind, any notions about who you were, who you are, who you're going to be. Come on, we all know what this is. This is where so much of our suffering comes from. When you're suffering, find out who's suffering. Very, very often, what we find is that some image has been ha- damaged. The person just gives you a high, you know just like that, and uh, suddenly something's hurt in us. So, uh, we start to see that, we start to empty the mind of all these representations. Well, what's left? Okay, now, some of the power of choiceless awareness, and um, this may not be fully understood, uh, it's working on a number of levels. One is, I think you're familiar with what I'm talking about here, what is it that's making choices all the time? Let's say that's doing the meditation. Uh, it's a center that we've created named me. I'm now doing choiceless awareness. Okay. We have to start there. Let's not be too hard on ourselves. But it's from that center, and that's what I meant, the image of uh, it expands sometimes and it's small sometimes with a leash for the, for the doggy. But nonetheless, uh, everything is related to that center. That uh, we do things and we strengthen that sense of, of, of a center from which things happen, to which things, hap- things happen to. And um, when the practice becomes choiceless awareness, I mean, when it's effortless, you can't make that happen. That's something that grows out of having lots of effort, doing all the things that this is saying not to do. But seeing it, and as you see it, it starts to fall away, fall away, fall away. And then you may find yourself, I have to use language, but there is awareness. Leave yourself out of it. There's a field of awareness of space without any center in it. There's not this agent who's doing everything, who's trying to meditate, who's reaping the benefits of meditation, who's dressed up as a yogi. It's all the ego. So, if you give that up and just allow whatever comes to come, you're just there, whatever turns up, turns up. It's fine. Good things, bad things, interesting, boring, sound, sights. There's just awareness, receiving whatever turns up. Can you see how that is, is decentralizing the ego? The ego is being put out of a job. Because it's the ego that's deciding all these things. It's the doer. And so, the method itself, it's a method, but it's also the end. In the hearing, there's just what's heard. In the seeing, there's just what's seen. In the tasting, there's just what's tasted. The Buddha said this in all the other sentences. In thinking, there's just what's thought. That's it. Someone asked them what the teaching was, and that was a... a, They didn't have much time. That was the quick version. And you could say, well, that's a guideline to practice but it's also the end of practice. And so, when we're practicing, uh, caring for the moment, really taking care of this moment by receiving it without separation, and as our capacity to do this grows, that is both the means and the end. We stop being preoccupied with this extraordinary event that's going to happen sometime in the future if we practice hard enough and rather understand is that we can waste our entire life chasing shadows and fantasies and that all, that all that really exists is now. That's all there is is now. Take care of it. Like sometimes when I ask people uh, back in Cambridge to kind of, how's your practice going? Very often the reports are all instrumental, you know, sort of, um, oh, I think my blood pressure has gotten lower. I have more energy. No, it's not a joke. It's good, you know. Uh, but it's all sort of, I'm more efficient, I'm more effective, I don't get as upset as much. Uh, and I say, yeah, but I mean, how is it when you're practicing? And it, it's very rare, it takes a while for the person realizes that there can be a certain perfume in the practice. In other words, in that moment of awareness, it's a great way to be alive. You don't have to have a kind of medical, quasi-medical enumeration of benefits to document that this is okay to do, and then have it proven by scientists for millions of dollars. You know it yourself in the moment when there's awareness without grasping and pushing away. Uh, and there's some kindness uh, and a lightness. That's, there's, some, there's a different flavor to living in that moment. And so the, the, the means in the end are the very same thing. It's the practice of liberation. In a given moment, we're enslaved. In a given moment, we can free ourselves. We're enslaved when we grasp or push away. That means the mind is detained. It's not moving freely. It's not doing choiceless awareness. It's not flowing. It's detained. But then you remember, and there's seeing, and the, the blockage of the dam stops, and then there's the flow again. And in that moment, there's freedom. And those moments of freedom are real, and they're happening right now. You don't have to wait forever for it. And there are dramatic breakthroughs, too. But the focus on taking care of this moment, don't underestimate that as being the whole practice, because it is. Um, let me end for this evening. Uh, I want to make sure this, this thing about emptying the mind of all of its notions about itself. We have all these characterizations about who we are, who we used to be, who we are and who we will be if we keep practicing hard enough. And their notions, they're representations in the mind, put together by thoughts and pictures, and then we believe them, and we take them to be who we are. Well, what this practice is about is emptying of all that, until finally what's left is what? Absolute presence. It's one way to talk about it. I don't know if it's too convincing but or means anything but absolute presence but you can't have absolute presence unless you have absolute absence or is the absolute presence is there because there's absolute absence of this preoccupation with ourselves constantly self referential constantly bodhidharma you, most many of you know this story uh, came from india as the story goes, to China, brought the teaching there. Uh, The emperor wanted to find out who this famous teacher from India was and asked him questions. He wanted to know if he would get any merit for all his good works, all his wonderful works that he had done, uh, monasteries, clothes for monks and nuns and so forth. And, And Bodhidharma said none, no merit. The emperor was shaken up. Uh, Bodhi, I don't know, I wasn't there, but, you know, he may have been getting at, uh, the Emperor was, of course, very caught up in me. I did all these things for these monks and nuns and I built monasteries and published books and uh, took care of their health. How much merit is there for me? None. Because of where it came from. They said, what about the holy Dharma? He says, nothing holy, just vast empty space. Again puncturing. He had made something else. Holy Dharma. Shot that one down. Finally, the Emperor couldn't take it anymore and he said, Who is it that's telling me all these things? And he said, I and then Bodhidharma said, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> now Joseph Stalin came very close to that. Joseph Stalin was almost a liberated being, but he missed the point a little bit and a lot of people paid for it. From his not his biography, but a, 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 not an autobiography a biography about him, uh, there's a story about one of his top assistants. Was complaining to Stalin, and he said, um, "I don't know, my you can't get good help anymore. You know, they they're just not on time. And they don't do what I tell them to. They're uh, they're just a problem. I'm getting really annoyed with all these people who are. I can't count on them." And Stalin got quiet, and then he said. Um, No person, no problem. (laughs) Okay, next day, no problem, because there was no person. But Stalin was a little too literal about it. (laughs) But he was on to something. It's just he he needed a Vipassana retreat. (laughs) Could we have a few moments of silence? Let's do some meditation while walking.